Hi, welcome to Tube to Table, the podcast about helping tube-fed kids become happy and healthy eaters. Every week, we will dive into the basics of tube weaning to help unravel the conflicting information families get from doctors, therapists, friends, and family. I'm Jenny, a feeding therapist, mom, and food lover. And I'm Heidi. I'm also a feeding therapist, and I love sharing meals with friends and family and helping kids learn to eat. Come with us as we share practical tips and provide real-world expert advice so that parents can help their little ones start their journey from feeding tube to family table. Hi, and welcome to episode 19 of the Tube to Table podcast, Just Wait. My name is Jenny, and I'm joined by Heidi, my colleague here at Thrive by Spectrum Pediatrics. Heidi, how are you today? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing really well. I think we're, um, we've been wanting to talk about this again, like most of our episodes, we love talking about this stuff, but this is one that comes up probably the most frequently when we hear from people who have kids that are on tubes who haven't begun the weaning process yet. And so um, I think it will be helpful. So the title Just Wait is happening because we get a lot of questions from people about the role that weight plays in preparing a child to wean and in weaning. And so we just wanted and to give you guys- And in giving a tube to begin with. So true. Yeah. And so I thought we could just kind of unravel what we know um, from medical literature and the work that we do about weight and its importance. And I'm wondering, Heidi, if you could just kind of give us a little bit of background on how we got here, where weight mm-hmm. has weight carries so much weight, if you will. It <laughs> has become this huge focus of kids with tubes. Sure. I think it comes to mind two different things for me. And the one is on a, on a macro level, on a higher level, the growth charts. Um, and if you look at the documents that support how you're supposed to use the growth charts, growth charts were intended to identify either in a population or an individual, if there's a problem, to look deeper and figure out what that problem is. So if it's a population, is there problem with access to food? If it's an individual, is there an illness that hasn't been discovered? Is there a a family dynamic the family doesn't have access to food? So it's intended to be an alert, not an indicator. Not a diagnostic tool. Not a diagnostic tool on its own. It's supposed to be an indicator to dig deeper. mm -hmm. Um, And I think if you look on an individual level then, which is where our where everybody sits. So how does this impact me? For a lot of kids, when you're born and whether you are just a typical breastfeeding baby, or if you have a very fragile medical start in the beginning, one of the only things that we can see from the outside that indicates whether kids are doing well or not doing well, it's growth, it's weight Mm -hmm. gain. Mm -hmm. So if kids aren't gaining weight, same dilemma, what should happen is we look further to figure out why they aren't gaining weight and do some tests. And, and we know lots of kids get thrown lots and lots and lots of tests to dig through and do all of these um, to try and get to the bottom of something. Um, and so there's a, there's a myriad of, of things, you know, kids are typically developing and they get a whole bunch of tests to figure something out, or they're very, very fragile. Um, but either way, weight is at the the um, beginning of their journey on trying to figure out if there's something 
further going on or not. And yeah. so that's why it carries so much weight. It does. And when you were talking, you and I were talking earlier this morning, we were talking a little bit, I love that you pointed out this thing that, which weight is, is one of the only indicators of health that we can measure in teeny tiny babies, breastfed, formula fed, or otherwise. <laughs> that mm-hmm. weight, it, really when they're super teeny tiny and more fragile, whether it be because of their age or because of their medical condition, it is one of the only indicators of health. So what happens though, is that as kids age, there's other indicators of their health that should be included in the consideration of weight, like considered alongside weight, not not apart from weight, not ignored. But because we get used to measuring weight and because honestly, it's convenient, it's a number. I think we as people, especially with kids and parenthood is out of control. And I think even for doctors, it's an easy thing to hang your hat on Mm -hmm. to like a number as something that you can plot and measure. And kids are not always that predictable. And so it can be a really easy thing to just put too much focus on. And I remember standing at you know, listening to some people talk one day and they're talking about their kids, their older kids and what they were doing. And then they both had, coincidentally, both had babies. And they're like, and what percentile is your baby? You know, (laughs) they went from grades to weight. And so it becomes this measure of how, how well your kid is doing or how, because there, there's not much else that, you know, well, they, they're breathing, you know, they're rolling over. (laughs) And so it is one. uh, And so there is one of the indicators. And I think for kids who are extremely fragile, it's one of the indicators that we understand the most. It is. And so when doctors start talking about some of the other medical indicators on whether they're doing well with their breathing or their heart or some of the other things that they start looking at when there is a very medically fragile start, weight is the one that everybody understands. You know, when you're trying to explain to friends and neighbors, you know, how well they're doing, it can be really confusing. But when you land on their gaining weight, everybody's like, oh, thank goodness. That, because I know what that's that means. one that they understand. Yeah, I know yeah. what that one means. Yeah. Um, so and it's we, easy to see how it starts. Yeah. And we could get into a whole nother episode about culturally, <laughs> culturally how much our society focus on, focuses on numbers and weight and how that kind of infiltrates all aspects of our food and diet culture in the United States. But it's certainly part of parenting in a huge way, as your story highlights. Um, another, this might be a good time to kind of just point out the dilemma, if you will, that doctors find themselves in, you know, we um, or families find themselves in when going to physicians to get advice. A lot of people will go to their child's doctor, whether it be the specialist that you're working with because of a medical condition or their pediatrician. And um, the physician may not have, through no fault of their own, the depth and breadth of training that would allow them to offer you the tools you need to get your kid out of the situation. And I can just tell you a quick little kind of anecdote from my life, but like I had a little guy who was failure to thrive. Our youngest had a little bit of a bumpy start himself and he lost weight, way too much weight too quickly in the early weeks of his life and early month of his, the first month of his life. And the doctor knew that that was a problem. It was. I knew it was a problem too. Believe me, I was losing my mind. But <laughs> the the problem was that even though we had all of this amazing, and I love our pediatrician, like all of this amazing knowledge, what he didn't have was the ability to give me the support system to surround me with women who who did have the keys to what this was like and to support me in different feeding strategies that would work, whether it be bottle or breast. Um, and And it was really problematic because I knew weight was a problem. Mm-hmm. This My baby didn't have a tube, but like it, I knew weight was a problem. He identified, he reinforced me that it was a problem. And then it was like, we got to get him gaining weight. And then 
there I was. And so I think for our tube fed families, that's often the case too. And so it's helpful for us to just remember that a lot of our physician friends have reported to us that in the feeding front, whether it comes to the responsive aspects or feeding or general health, there's very little education in medical school Mm -hmm. for physicians about the, how to compare weight to other factors or how to include it in like how kids, uh, you know, how to, how to decide if a child is thriving aside from weight. So it makes sense that the focus Mm -hmm. lands there in in defense of the doctors who are just trying to help your kid and keep them safe. Well, and it leads me into another story back. It's been many years now, back when I was working at the children's hospital, we had a coworker whose daughter had twins a little bit early, not extremely early, but a little bit early. One of them was bigger than the other and ended up, um, was in the room with mom and able to, um, nurse and do all these, you know, do all the more typical progression things. And the other one was a little bit smaller, a little bit more fragile and ended up in the NICU, what they called the, um, gaining and growing NICU. There wasn't a lot of medical, um, things, but they were just more worried about him. And his, um, volume expectations were actually higher than the more typically developing baby. He was allowed to nurse. Nobody was measuring his intake, but they could kind of guess about how much he was getting per feeding. Um, and how frequently he was feeding and how long he was feeding. And the other one had higher volume um, recommendations, which is reminding me that we dump, once kids get a feeding tube, they're now placed in a different category. And there may be lots of different etiologies that get them to that place. But now they are all in this place where weight remains the big thing because we know that weight has been a problem before. So it does, it groups them differently. Yeah, they're and they're held to a completely different standard than their peers without tubes or without other diagnoses. And before we jump into that, because I think we have a few more things to say about that, just a quick note, we talked about growth charts. BMI also is a really common thing that gets um, used to assess kids' health in a way that isn't the way that it was intended to be used. And just a little FYI, that F, that BMI is, def, is usually not recommended to be used, is not recommended to be used as a measure to help assess kids' health under the age of two. And even more re- as recently as two years ago, in some major medical journals, there are some studies that indicate that for kids under the age of nine, BMI is not a good indicator of future weight stability and health and um, body fat index or body fat, mm-hmm. ba- body mass. And so just to kind of keep that in mind, some of these things, because they're measurable, are still being used, but they're being used in ways that are inappropriate. Right. And so that'll bring, I guess we can, that similar things are going on with our kids that have, that are in special populations that have specific diagnoses. But one of the most common things that we see is, see is that children are, like you just said, children that have tubes are People, I think the tubes there, this is the, this is my interpretation of what I hear when I talk to physicians that are, or nutritionists or dietitians that are originally a little reluctant about weaning. The tubes there, why not use it? And then mm-hmm. the next phase, which is the most upsetting to us often, is let's get the most out of it. So let's really pump them up. We have a tube, why not? More is better. And more is not always better. Children are supposed to be growing on a curve that is slow and steady and comfortable for them. And so often we see the tube not being adjusted based on what the child is doing. For instance, vomiting several times a day. But Mm -hmm. also we see kids that are way higher percentiles than their family, other family, like, you know, other siblings would have been at that age or their peers with the same 
degree of mm-hmm. prematurity or diagnoses. But because they're viewed as fragile in the medical community, there's this temptation to keep them plump. And there's mm-hmm. and what we are here to say is that that is a dangerous thing. We want kids to learn how to self-regulate. And when that growth chart is artificially enhanced, it has an effect on a child's ability to kind of control or adjust how much they need to take in. And what we see is that it further complicates. Doesn't Mm -hmm. make it impossible out there if that's happening to you. Don't worry. Like, it's still possible. But it further complicates the weaning process and obviously puts them at risk for confusion around food and what their body's messages are telling them later. Well, and we do know that many special populations have their own growth charts. Mm-hmm. And we do that many, um, depending on how long, and um, ethnic groups have their own growth charts as well. And so it does depend on how long you've been in the United States. You know, there is some factors with access to nutrition and all kinds of things like that, depending on where the child came from, um, or if the family came or from the heritage. Else, mm-hmm. their heritage, but extremely low birth weight, children who are born with an extremely low birth weight, grow differently. They have a different growth trajectory. And so expecting them to follow everybody else's growth trajectory doesn't make sense for all those kids. Just to say one more thing about that, it doesn't mean that they're just lower and that it's this nice, smooth little line. It might be a line that is low, lean, low, lean, that jumps up and is higher, 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 and then jumps down. And I don't, it's different for different populations. It's different for different diagnoses and for different reasons. And so Mm -hmm. it's just important that you're working with someone that probably doesn't have all the answers because nobody could know everything about every diagnosis and every eventuality that may happen to your child and every child that they see, but that's willing and committed to kind of looking at those factors and considering Mm -hmm. that and just really basic little errors that we see happening is that children aren't being compared to growth charts of uh, there are growth charts for several diagnoses out there that you can plot your child and see where they are compared to their same age peers with the same diagnoses though there's few of them that are used broadly Um, but but also we see a lot of kids with tubes who are being compared to um, their their peers that are their chronological age versus their adjusted developmental age. And that is a mistake. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. not fair to them. What's funny, Jamie and I were looking at pictures from the past and looking at how so many kids actually looked really plump in the face before mm-hmm. we weaned them. And when you really look later, it looked it was fluid. It didn't yeah. look as healthy as some of their later weight gain because so much of it was just lots and lots of fluid in their little bodies. Yeah. Um, but it feels like you're doing a good thing. When you see those numbers go up, you feel like you can breathe. Um, and I, you know, I know to add on to that, lots of people with a medically fragile start weren't allowed to go home until those numbers started to go up because that's when the doctors felt like they're good. They're out of the woods. They're not going to you know, do anything. They're not going to crash in front of me. Now they're safe to go home. But then that becomes an indicator of health and wellness and home. Mm -hmm. Um, And that gets emotionally all tied up together. Mm -hmm. And it's really difficult to unravel later. It is. And so just like a quick, like a positive note about what to do. Like, so we're looking at weight, we're looking at the child individually after a certain point, And the certain point is honestly health. Like after your child's in a medically stable place, that's when, like, you know, their their life isn't in danger. They've stabilized. They're, you know, they're doing okay. And you know when that is as parents because you can feel it. It's it's a big shift in your lifestyle. Once they're in a medically stable place, the, we have to stop looking at kind of predetermined 
schedules and amounts and prescriptions for how much goes in the tube and start looking at what the child is telling us about the volumes that they are getting through their weight, but also through their behavior and their reactions to those foods versus like we do with our other kids, like we do with any kids, kids that don't have tubes. And so we're not going to keep feeding our child the same thing. If every time my little guy eats mashed avocado, he vomits, I'm not going to keep giving him mashed avocado, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. And But for some reason, and it's not the parents' fault, it's because there's this kind of white coat syndrome going on where we, for, like, you know, that these doctors have more than likely helped be a part of helping your child survive or save their lives directly. And so it makes sense that we defer control to those experts as we have, as was right to do. But just remembering that we have to then begin to adjust our plans and our feeding schedules, volumes, and the way that we're doing things based on what we see in the child, not mm-hmm. in the kind of calculator. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Or the chart. And because weight was such an indicator of survival, it's a very fearful thing to decrease what they're getting by tube a little bit, even if the vomiting stops, because it feels like you're not giving them what they need. It's terrifying. Um, but truthfully, if you were to measure what they vomited up, it's often <laughs> it's often equivalent or similar to what you would, you know, to what you would take out of the feeding tube that it it evens out. Yeah. Um, it's less of a jump than you think to mm-hmm. decrease the feed. It feels like a little a bit of a scary thing to do. And we understand that for not just doctors but also for family members that uh, feeding our kids is you know, it's been known for decades that the way that we feed our kids and how we feed our kids is so intricately tied to our identity Mm -hmm. and our being okay as parents. Um, And so it makes sense that this is also complicated for the moms and dads out there. It's especially tied to motherhood identity. Um, And so it's scary to watch your Mm -hmm. kid lose weight. We're not, we're not suggesting that weight isn't important or that you should let your child tumble off the growth charts or tumble off their curve. We're just suggesting that it be put in perspective alongside other measures of health, like output, (laughs) pee and poop, like sleep, developmental milestones, comfort, Mm -hmm. engagement, the, the ability to seem and act well. Those things are also very important. And then these other really big ones that we probably bore everybody with because we talk about them every single week is, are they, being, are they having a positive relation? And we can't always control that while we're be, they're being tube fed, but are they having as positive up as possible interactions with what they're being fed or with the food that either is going in their tube or being presented them, to them orally? Is that happening in a loving, positive way? Or is it happening in a way that's undermining their self-regulation and trust? So all of those things have to be considered on the same level. Right. And they're often not. And but they can be. That's an easier switch than most people think. I think most medical teams are open to this discussion, if slowly. <laughs> and I think we touched on this before, but I just think it's important to touch on it again. Is fed is best. Is mm-hmm. that if there was a decision, you know, if your child had a very fragile start, the tube was likely life saving. Um, and that's that's great, and it there's a lot of great things with that. If it came along later because of weight, that's a mixed journey for everyone. And I just most medical teams and most families, everybody is making the best decision that they can at the time. Yeah. And so knowing that you were doing something to provide your child with nutrition 
is important. I think there's just comes a time to switch the way you're thinking. And as your child progresses, as your family progresses, as his skills progress, as all of those things progress, you may be at a different place now. And so maybe, maybe now it's the time to look at it a little bit differently. Yeah. And just to like put in, you know, we've talked about the windows of development, how the reason that you want to look to weaning when your child is medically stable, if things are, you know, emotionally and psychologically also stable in your family and you're not in the middle of a crisis, um, and if they're developmentally mentally showing the skills, there are several reasons that we want to start moving that way, um, including developmental windows that make learning to eat um, more readily accessible and knowing that those the older a kid gets, the more difficult it, it gets. We know that weaning later in life, like in later childhood is more complicated. And we also know that self-regulation, is formed and rooted in early childhood eating experiences. So we want to try to uncover that as soon as we can, because all of those things, self-regulation, development, all of those things have ties to growth and um, wellness and health implications later in life. And so it's also really important that when your physician or your medical team and you as a family are considering readiness and timing, that you're considering weight against not just, you know, the upsides of, of the other right. factors of health that you can measure today, but also factors of health that may be being compromised by the tube for the mm-hmm. future. And there doesn't, there's no study that I know of, and I, I don't know how you would even begin to do the study that says, here's how you judge whether weight is more important or, you know, right. or another measure of health. But you, but but physicians are really gifted and knowledgeable. And if we can put all of those factors on the table, the more preventative long-term risks, along with today's health indicators, including weight, most physicians have a better, like they have a really easy time usually of making Mm -hmm. that decision once they are looking at it in the broad view. And it's our job, unfortunately, (laughs) as parents to kind of help nudge that conversation. We do it all the time as therapists. Um, but I also have to have that conversation with physicians and with my own child. You know, we have we're in a health care situation where we have to advocate for ourselves, mm-hmm. and it can be done in a very compassionate and understanding way. And kind of remembering that our medical teams, if they don't have this information yet, if they don't have the big picture or know how to get your kids off the tube, it doesn't mean they're not willing to. It means. Well, and- they're human beings. Yeah. And they. one of the things that we do as part of our tube weaning evaluation and treatment process is help families talk to physicians, Yeah, um, is initiating that conversation with them of talking to them about all of these different factors. And one of the things we found in that process is starting factually and not in an aggressive way, but just saying, I've been doing some looking Mm-hmm. at all these indicators of wellness because my child is on a tube. And here's some of the things I've found that that I think we've been overlooking, I think in the balance of things, this outweighs this. Um, and how or, do we work towards getting them off the Or tube? just say, can we consider this when we have our next conversation about weight mm-hmm. and weaning? Because I think there's ways to open it up without, uh, I mean, do, do it feel, yeah, yeah, without alienating your team. And like, that's one of the things that we think is really, you know, we're biased, but wonderful about our program is that our goal is to leave you with your medical team intact whenever possible and to work with them 
and and to work together. I mean, it takes a village. It really, truly does. And we don't want to alienate things and put children's health at risk by mm-hmm. going without a physician on board. Although there is a time and a place for that. Uh, I don't know that we're the experts on when that time and place is because we work with physicians only. Um, but but yeah, there that is building consensus is not only possible, it actually usually happens more readily than we think, you know, like I know Heidi, I, I, in the early part of my two weenie experience, when we started this program, I felt frustrated and angry some of the time mm-hmm. when I saw kids that were, you know, overfed by the tube or physicians saying they would, they'll learn how to eat when they're five before they're in kindergarten, but everything else was going fine. I used to get really mad. And now what I know is it's just about sharing information. None of us can be experts on everything. And we, we, can, that's why we're here doing this podcast, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, we want you guys to have that information so then you can go back to your team and have those discussions that are so crucial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think every discussion I have with a doctor affirms my belief that everybody wants to do the best for these kids and everybody is coming with a set of knowledge and pediatricians often only have a couple of kids on tubes and GI doctors tend to have lots of kids on tubes, but they also have kids with lots and lots of really significant illnesses. And so the child doing well with the tube um, doesn't have the same stressors, but they do tend to have the same level of care because they provide a higher level of care. Um, So I think it's just worth starting a discussion with with one medical professional. Find the one that's probably the most likely to support you and you have a, a good relationship with and a discussion with and, and, and start the discussion about yeah. other indicators of wellness. Yeah. So just in summary, you know, you're going to want to make sure that any measures that are being used to assess your child's health around weight are accurate, that BMI is being used appropriately, if at all, that the growth yards, growth charts are being appropriately, if at all, and that weight is being considered against other measures of health, both now in the present and risk factors that can be avoided in the future. And that all of that can be done um, delicately <laughs> through conversation. And we're going to provide some show notes that give you some good resources to hope help you to hopefully help you start those conversations with your medical teams. Um, we hope this is helpful for you guys. We'll be back next week with another episode. Have a great one. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Tube to Table podcast. Every week, we're going to share our show notes at thrivewithspectrum.com. In the show notes, you can find a summary of what we discussed and links to all the resources that we mentioned. Also, you can visit us on social media and Instagram and Facebook. We can be found at Thrive with Spectrum. And on Twitter, you can find us at Thrive with SP. Please don't hesitate to reach out to us on social media and let us know if you have any input or any topics that you'd really like to see us address. We'll be back next week. 